Father in heaven, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit now as we open your word, that you will speak to us. You, you have made promises in your word. Help us to discern those today that our hearts can be filled with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to reflect today on a psalm, Psalm 132. And, and uh, one of the things that happens to me sometimes when I read a psalm is I just kind of blow through it. And I don't really think about it, and I don't, don't take the time to reflect on the context and all of the different implications that might be associated with it. So I want to take some time and do that today with Psalm 132, because the, the, the title of this sermon is The Promise, and there really are four promises contained within this psalm. And I want you to see those and be amazed at the power of God's Word and how it connects back together. One of the things that the Psalms often do is they bring pieces from various places of the Bible and put them together in an expression of praise. And I think you're going to see that in this Psalm today as we go through it and look at these different promises that God has made and how they've been fulfilled or how they are still to be fulfilled. So let's, let's jump right in there. Now, in order to really get this, we're going to have to spend a little time building here at the beginning. So, so stay with me at the beginning of this because you're really going to like how it ends if you do. Psalm 132, verse 1, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. All right, so, so let's give a little history and context here. Understand that, that in this time, and, and this is probably written by someone uh, after David or, or towards the end of David into the Solomon time, uh, but not written by David himself because it's referring to the promise. Remember the promise made to David as opposed to me or something like that. And you'll also see there's, there's context here that goes beyond David's time. But, but to put this all in perspective, the understanding of God and his presence with his people at that time was a little different than how we see it now. And there's good, different, the good reason why it was different. But, but primarily, the understanding of the presence of God was that God was contained in the space where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, now not fully contained there. Obviously, God was bigger than that. But, but the Ark of the Covenant was, was the symbol of the presence of God with his people. And this had been established when they came out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and God said, build me a tabernacle that I might dwell with you. So they built the, the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the Ark of the Covenant was the special representation of the presence of God. And then the Shekinah glory of God, the literal presence of God came and dwelt uh, above the Ark of the Covenant there. So this is what David is referring to. Now, to appreciate what he's saying, we need to remember a little bit of the history of the Ark of the Covenant and where it was and what the Ark really was. So if we were to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we'd see there the story uh, and we would find out there at the beginning of that book that the Ark was in a town called Shiloh, which is a little bit north of Jerusalem. And the ark was there, and in those days, Jerusalem wasn't even a city of the Jews yet. It was still a Jebusite city. So it was located to the north there, and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were the priests with the ark. 
Now, this is the time before the kings. And if you remember this story, during this time, Israel and the Philistines went to war. And they gathered in an area called Aphek, and they were there, and the Israelites were losing. And so they said, we're losing. We need a good luck charm. So Hophni and Phinehas took the ark from Shiloh to the battlefield. And if you'll remember the story, it comes into the camp, and all the Israelites let out this great cheer. Now, do you remember what the Philistines said when they heard this cheer? They said to one another, fight for your lives, Philistines, for a God has come into their camp. Now, what I want you to get with that is to understand the mindset and how, how their perception of gods was in those days. Gods, in their mind, were much more limited in location. And so the fact that they had brought this, this object of Yahweh, the God of heaven, into the camp meant that Yahweh had come into the camp. There was kind of a parallel understanding of some of the Israelites and the Philistines on this because the Israelites thought, okay, the God is here, now we have to win not recognizing that that's not how the God of heaven works. He supports his people, but the people of Israel had become unfaithful to God. And that was the reason there was a battle with the Philistines in the first place. And in that context, just having the trinket associated with God is not the guarantee of victory. God cannot be manipulated that way by his people. And we need to remember that in our own day. So the battle takes place the next day, and as it turns out, the Philistines defeat the Israelites. And in the process, Hophni and Phinehas are both killed, and they capture the ark. Now understand how their minds work. To have won that battle with the God in their camp must mean that their God is greater than the God of Israel. So what do they do with the ark? They bring it back and they put it in the temple of their God. So they bring the ark back to the city of Ashdod and they put the ark in the temple of Dagon and everybody goes home happy and goes to bed. But they didn't understand the true power of God and what this ark represented because they came in the next day and what happened? That's right, the, the, the idol of Dagon was on his face before the ark which is an indication of I'm less than and I'm worshiping, right? And they're like, okay, accidents happen. They put him back up, and they come back in the next day, and what happens the next day? Boom, down there again, only this time his head came off and rolled onto the threshold of the, of the temple. And it is around this time when all this is going on, when it's seemingly this God that we've conquered is destroying our God in his own temple, at the same time that this is going on, the people start getting tumors, the Bible says. And so the people of Ashdod are like, yeah, I don't know. This wasn't happening before this thing came here. So they send it to Gath, one of the other cities of the Philistines. And they're like, yeah, no problem. Send it here. Well, it's not too long after it arrives in Gath, and they start getting tumors as well. So they're like, nope, not staying here. They send it to Ekron. And as it's coming into Ekron, the men of Ekron get out at the edge of the city and they say, no way. You, you must hate us if you're going to send that thing here. We don't want anything to do with this. Isn't that funny? It's not enough to make the army of Israel win, but single-handedly the ark all by itself without any help has cast terror into the hearts of the Philistines to the point where they say, let's put it on a cart and send it home. So they do that. They put it on a cart, and it's an amazing story. They take, they take two, uh, two 
cows, mother cows, mother oxen, and hook them up. They have babies back behind them. You know how mothers with babies are. They say, if they go to Israel, we'll know that it is God who caused these things to us. If they don't, then we'll know it's just coincidence. Well, those mama cows go straight all the way to Israel, to the town of Beth Shemesh. And when they get there, the ark is there. They stop beside a rock. And the people, the Israelites at that place come and they take the ark off and put it on the rock. And they rejoice because the ark has returned to Israel. But they also make a mistake. In their joy, some of them take a peek inside the ark. They forget the holiness of God. And Scripture says, it's kind of an interesting scripture there. It seems that there's a translation issue with it because, because some versions suggest 50,000 people died. But if there really were 50,000 people there, that would have been the biggest city in all of Judea at that point. So that's, that's probably a translation issue that, that meant something else there. But it seems about 50 of them died, which would be a reasonable number for what you would expect in that region. But still, that's an incredibly harsh judgment that fell upon them. And the people say, the Lord is too holy for us. Take this ark away from us. You see what's going on here? On the one hand, it represents the presence of God, which is something that everybody wants. On the other hand, when you fail to appreciate the significance of the holiness of God, this thing becomes a terror. And so they take it to another place, and, and it's in this other place for a time. And while it's there, it's still in the tent. They bring the tent, and they set it around it, the, the tabernacle design from the wilderness, probably not the original materials, but still, they put it in that design. And it's located outside of Jerusalem. So, so while it's there, all these other things go on in Israel. King Saul comes to the throne, then his reign ends, and then, then David comes to the throne. And it is after David comes to the throne that he determines that he wants to bring the symbol of the presence of God to be where he is in Jerusalem. So he makes a try to do it. And the first time he tries to bring the presence of God to be with him, the Ark of the Covenant, he follows the model of the Philistines. He gets a cart. He has the Ark put on the cart. And the cart heads out. And on the way, one of the oxen stumbles. And the, the Ark begins to tip. And Uzzah, who's walking along behind it, do you remember what he does? He puts out his hand to stabilize it. And boom, he's struck dead on the spot. And it is at that moment that David says, yeah, I don't think I want this thing where I am. So they turn aside at the point where the oxen stumbled, and they put it in the home of one of the men that lives there. And three months go by. And those three months turn out to be the three most amazing months of blessing in that man's home that he's ever had in his whole life. So on the one hand, people are struck dead. On the other hand, here it is a blessing to the righteous. And David says, okay, okay, we got to do this again. Only this time we're going to do it right. We're going to do it like it's described in the books of Moses. So the priests go down and they take a, the ark on their shoulders and they carry it and they sacrifice every little ways along the way. And, and this is the story where David is, is dancing mightily before the Lord, leading the procession into Jerusalem. And the ark comes up into the city 
and they put it in the city where David is, but it's still in the tent. There's not a permanent place for it. And it is in the context of this that we find in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find these words. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, we find these words. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. It occurred to David that the Lord had blessed him with all of this, and here he was in a beautiful place, yet the ark is in a tent. And he wanted to build a temple for the God of heaven. Nathan the prophet goes, and that night the Lord speaks to him, and he comes back, and here's what the Lord says, verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God is saying, I've never had a house. I haven't chosen a place. I've moved around. But now we skip to verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, this is God to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, God is telling him a lot here. And he's telling him a lot more than David probably thinks he's being told. He's being told that one will come after him who will sit on the throne, who will in fact build this literal temple. But he's also saying more. He's talking about someone who will come in his line whose reign will go on forever. But David likely doesn't understand all of this, even as it's being said to him, and even as it's happening. But now that I've given you that context, I want to go back to Psalm 132, and I want to read it to you again, and, and it will make more sense to you now. Verse 1, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So David says, I want the presence of the Lord to be where I am. So he brings the ark, the symbol of God's presence, to Jerusalem. Then he says, I want to build him a place that's good. And God says, no, it won't be you. We go on, verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. 
Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. So what he's saying here is, I'm going to bring the ark, which is the symbol of God's resting place, the place where God wants to dwell amongst his people. I'm going to bring it here and then the priests will, will serve in righteousness and the saints who come before the Lord will shout for joy. Now, I think we need to, to reflect on this because this idea of the saints shouting for joy is going to come up again. And, and I just want to put it in that context to realize when we, the people of God, gather together in worship, we should come prepared to experience that worship. So he's talking about building a place that can be the resting place for the ark of God. All right. Now, what I want to suggest to you happens in the, the last half of this psalm is essentially four promises. Now, it's one single promise, but it's a promise that gets fulfilled four ways. And as we go along and as we have built this up, I think you will see how these things happen. So, so let's look at this now. Let's go on with this passage. The very first fulfillment of this is a very plain and simple fulfillment. Now, I'm going to read you verses 10 through 18. Listen to these verses of Psalm 132. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. <clears throat> the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There it is again. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. All right, so that's the rest of the passage. And I read through that, and maybe a few things jumped at you, but let me take you through it a little slower now and put it in the context of four promises. The first way that this promise is fulfilled is very literal. It's very literally fulfilled in David's son Solomon. So verse 11, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn for it, from it, I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. And he absolutely does this when Solomon his son becomes king. Now verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now watch what happens here, verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. All right, I'm going to pause right there. If you remember the reign of Solomon, you remember that Solomon came after David. Solomon built the house for the Lord. And Solomon was given great wisdom and became this great ruler. His kingdom was larger than David's ever was. He had peace all around him. Kings from all over came to him to learn from him. 
There was so much wealth and prosperity in the days of Solomon that Scripture said silver was not even regarded as significant because there was so much gold. This psalm says that the blessing of the Lord is going to come. I will abundantly bless her, bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with, with bread. This was absolutely fulfilled in the days of Solomon. So the first promise, the first fulfillment of these words in Psalm 132 is manifest in Solomon who comes as the son of David who is, prospers gloriously and, and who everyone in the city is blessed because he's there because of that time. Now, it goes on and it talks about in verse 17, there I will make the horn of David grow. The kingdom gets larger. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. All the people of the world came there to see the light of God. His enemies I will clothe with shame. There were no enemies that were able to rise up effectively against Solomon, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. It's a perfect description of what happens with Solomon. But that's not the only reality here. It is a fulfillment, but it's not the final fulfillment. You see, some of these prophecies are saying that I will establish one according to your seed who will go on forever. Did Solomon go on forever? No, he didn't, did he? Did the sons of Solomon and the line of kings go on forever? Is there still a son of David who is a literal king over a kingdom in Israel? No, there's not, is there? So what did that part mean? Well, we go on. Verse 17, There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. Now, this word anointed, it ought to be familiar to us because it is the word in Hebrew, Messiah, the anointed one. And what he's saying here is there, I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed one here in Jerusalem in this place. We go back to verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. There's a bigger fulfillment to what was taking place here and what is written about in this psalm. And it would take place in a way that the people wouldn't even realize it was happening. You see, the, the whole idea here, the idea of the Ark of the Covenant was the reality of God with us, God in our midst. Do you remember one of the names that Jesus was to be called? Do you remember? It was Emmanuel. Do you remember that name? You know what that name means? God with us. You see, Jesus came as that literal fulfillment of what the ark was representing, of what the Shekinah glory was representing. Now, the glory of God dwelt in the temple until the time of its destruction in the time of the Babylonians. And then you have that description in Ezekiel of the glory of God departing the temple. And it never came back to that next temple that was built until the day Jesus walked into the temple. And nobody realized that on that day the glory of God had returned to the temple. Only now, instead of hiding somewhere in the back, the glory of God stood amongst the people. But no one knew. We go to Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, 
and we find this description of what would happen. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This was Jesus arriving at the temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He is like a launderer's soap. You see, Jesus would come humble, meek, and mild, yet the reality of who he was would expose in the hearts of the people what was really there. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Hang on to that point. And purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Okay, what else? Isaiah 61, these are the words that Jesus speaks about himself. He says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to who? To the poor, to those in need. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. All right, let me take you back now to Psalm 132 and look at this language here. Psalm 132, verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. What did Jesus say? He said, I came to give good news to the poor. And what was Jesus called? What did he say he was? He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So here he is, the descendant of David, coming to his temple to give bread to the poor. Who are the poor? Everyone. Everyone. Verse 16, I will also clothe her priests with salvation. What did Malachi say that the one who was coming would do? He would purify the sons of Levi. Jesus is a fulfillment of this promise in Psalm 132. It's talking about him. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. However, he's not the final because this goes on. And this next one, this is amazing. Listen to verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Okay, so the understanding of those in the time of David and, and coming after that when this psalm was written was the presence of God dwelt in the sanctuary behind the veil in the most holy place. But Jesus comes as the literal presence of God, walks into the temple, <coughs> and what happens when Jesus dies? Do you remember? What gets torn? The veil of the temple is torn from the top to the bottom, exposing the most holy place where the presence of God was to have dwelt and opening the way 
for everyone to come. No longer is the presence of God contained in a building, but now the presence of God has gone somewhere else. Where has the presence of God gone? Well, you know this passage. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians verse six, chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So now the temple is done, but what has become the temple? You. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus now has become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. But not just you alone, us together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Hang on to that word. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. What's being said here is that all of us are being built together into a house that contains the presence of God. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Okay, Gentiles, we've talked about this, right? We were out there, but through Jesus... Not only are we brought near through Jesus, we are made into the very temple of God in which the presence of God dwells. We who were nobody are now the very dwelling place of God. Now watch what happens to Psalm 132 when we bear this in mind. Verse 16, I will also clothe her priests with salvation. Do you remember what 2 Peter told us? We are a kingdom of priests now. And what happens when we come to Jesus? Doesn't he wrap us in his robe of righteousness? Psalm 132 says, I will clothe her priests with salvation. That's you. You're now a priest of God clothed in the salvation of Jesus Christ. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. That makes sense there, right? After God has clothed us in righteousness, are not our hearts lifted up in joy? There I will make the horn of David grow and will prepare a lamp for my anointed. What is God's chosen instrument by which to shine forth the glory of God to the world in this day? It's His church. It is the city on a hill. It is the light that cannot be hid. It is the growth of the the descendant of David. It grows through the church. The message of Jesus goes to the world through the church. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. The Lord has promised that the gates of hell will not stand against his people. 
So this is the third fulfillment, the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart and the reality of the message of Jesus that goes forth out of the church. What we become together becomes the place where the presence of God is. This building, we call it the church, but it's, it's, it's just a space. Now, I think God honors it because we've been here, but the thing that makes this the house of God is not that it's an A-frame. It's your presence that makes this the house of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And when you come and we gather as the church, this becomes holy ground. That's how it works. But that's not even the final fulfillment. So we have the fulfillment in Solomon, very literal. We have the fulfillment in Jesus, eternal. We have the fulfillment in the church. But there's one more. Verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. The Lord desires to be reunited with his people, with his creation. And all of his work, the ark, the temple, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is all leading up to something that will come at the end. Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new, what? Jerusalem, the place where God has chosen to place His name. The new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That whole word tabernacle, you know what that word meant? It meant dwelling place. So when they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was the, the dwelling place of God with His people. And now here Revelation 21 is telling us, now the tabernacle of God is with men. The dwelling place of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. All right, now let's, let's put something together here. The Lord, verse 11, Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it, I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. Who is it that sits upon this throne that we see in Revelation 21? It's the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. It is Jesus Christ our Lord. The fruit of the body of David sitting on the great throne. Now, now 
this part. If your sons will keep, verse 12, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. Okay, now this is really neat. He says here in Revelation that, that he becomes our father and we become his sons, right? And we read that we as the church become the priests of God. So, so he says, if, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony that I teach them, they will sit on my throne forever. Do you remember how the, the letter to the church of Laodicea in Revelation ends, Revelation 3, verse 21. Do you remember this one? Jesus says this. He says, To him who overcomes, I will give to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down on my Father's throne. So, so here we get verse 12 of Psalm 132. If your sons will keep my covenant, that's you, because you're now the sons and daughters of God. If you will keep the covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach, if you overcome, you shall sit upon his throne forever. This is about you. This is about God's ultimate promise to you. Revelation 22, verse 1, And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Four promises. Three have been fulfilled. Solomon came and sat on the throne, just like God said. Jesus came, took the throne, and reigns eternally, just like the psalm said. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in your heart, and out of you goes the message of God to a darkened world, just like the psalm said. One more. Not yet fulfilled. But here are the words, verse 12, Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. God has promised. It should give you great confidence in the Word of God that someone could write this psalm inspired by the Holy Spirit having no idea you would ever even exist. But yet you can find yourself in this Word with all of these other things of the Bible feeding into this singular message, this singular reality that the God that was separated from us when we sinned longs for nothing more than to be reunited with us again. And through Jesus Christ, we are brought back together with the Father. Don't lose your hope. 
Don't lose your faith. Believe the promise. Jesus will come again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all of our hope is in Jesus. Even King Solomon in his greatness could not sustain himself. But the Lord in his weakness and suffering who died has risen again to eternal life and has claimed the throne of this world. He is our Lord, and we give him our allegiance. We are his church, and in these days when he is present with us through the Holy Spirit, Lord, we seek to do your will, but we long to see you face to face. Lord Jesus, keep this last promise. Come quickly that we might forever dwell with you. In Jesus' name, amen.